Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So um, tonight I'm starting a series of talks on Ajahn Shah's teachings. He's a very well-known Thai meditation master of the last century, died in 1992, and also was a teacher of many of the well-known teachers here in the West, people like Jack Kornfield, many of you know about, and Ajahn Sumedho, both uh, American teachers. Ajahn Sumedho has been a Buddhist monk now for 40-some years. And Jack Kornfield, although practiced as a monk in Thailand for about five years, has been a lay person uh, since the 70s, teaching out of California mostly. It's important to, uh, you know, especially as we find out about these teachings here in this corner of Minneapolis and the teachings of the Buddha has spread, in a way, we're more and more removed from some of the traditional forms and traditional cultures where Buddhism was for many centuries, of course. So it's nice to take some time to dig in and to get a sense of both uh, people who lived and, and practiced in Buddhist cultures, but also people whose practice was very deep. And Ajahn Chah um, seems, you know, from our point of view now looking back, hearing the stories, reading the talks that have been transcribed over the century, over the last couple of decades, seems like this was a very wise person. This is what Jack Kornfield said to, in the foreword to this book that I'll be uh, taking some of the teachings of Ajahn Chah from. It's called Food for the Heart. And some of you may want to get a hold of a copy and read along over the next few months, if you'd like. You don't need to. But in the foreword to that book, Jack Kornfield says, it's hard to know how to best introduce the wisest man I have ever met. In his presence, there was immediacy and aliveness, simplicity and truth-telling, dignity and intimacy, humor and serious discipline, heartbreaking compassion, and spontaneous freedom. And a little later he says, most of Ajahn Chah's teachings, teaching was done in the reality of the moment, by example, by metaphor, <coughs> by the aliveness of dialogue. His teaching was direct and honest, with no holds barred. And then he quotes some, look at the, look at the cause of suffering in this human realm. It's like this, he would say, pointing to our hearts pointing our hearts toward the truth. Because he was a consummate performer who taught with a hundred skillful means, because he met each new visitor so directly, adapting his humor and penetrating eye to the circumstances before him, it is hard to wholly capture the vitality of his teaching in words. He leaps off the page to remind us that, whoever we are, the conditions of life are uncertain. If death is within you, then where are you going to run to escape it? Whether you are afraid or not, you die just the same. There's nowhere to escape death. So he's quoting Ajahn Chah there. From the ground of this truth, he points the way that leads endlessly beyond the changing conditions of birth and death 
to true freedom. And then again, quoting him, he says, Ajahn Chah says, This is the important thing you must contemplate until you reach the point where you let go, where there isn't anything left beyond good and bad, beyond good and bad, coming and going, birth and death. Train the heart, rest in the unconditioned, he urges. Liberation is possible. Those who would follow the teachings of this beloved master must be willing to look into their own heart and mind, to loosen the knots, release the grasping, the fears, the whole false sense of self. If you really understand, no matter what life you live, you can practice the Dharma every minute of the day. Why not give it a try, Ajahn Chah suggests. It will transform your life. And this is, you know, traditionally, not just in Buddhism, in spiritual circles, you know, the, the most fortunate thing would be to run into somebody whose natural wisdom and natural compassion, natural skill was just obvious. In a way, it's like being around somebody like that, we can begin to sympathetically vibrate. You know, it's actually easy to be enlightened. Some of you probably have read some of the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha. And so back then, 2,600 years ago, you know, he'd give a talk, and inevitably there would be one or two people who would awaken right there, just listening to the Dharma talk. And it might be that the words are great, but you know, we can, in a sense, listen to those same talks. We can read. It was recorded. I mean, not literally recorded, but written down later. But we don't have, it doesn't have that effect on us. I mean, we may be moved, but later we're a jerk again, or we're <laughs> deluded again. But I think one of the differences is when you're in the, you know, when you're there with somebody who's deeply wise, deeply awakened, it's like, just like when we're around a really naughty person or a mean person, we kind of sympathetically vibrate with them, kind of become like them. Same when we're around really wise, loving people. It's easier to be wise and loving when we're around them. So, part of what we'll do as we look through this is, you know, one of the qualities of really wise people is that just the thought of them, the memory of them, the reflecting on what they did and what they said, we can get a, a sense as if we're there with them. But it takes a little bit of imagination. I remember one of my first uh, silent retreats back in the early 80s. And uh, it was in Santa Barbara. I was living in California, Northern California at the time. But I went down for this New Year's retreat. It's like seven days between Christmas and New Year's. And uh, sitting, and there was this inspiring teacher I just heard speak. and. I was really inspired by him, and I was also really inspired by his teacher, who was, had died, and uh, and had read a lot from about his teacher and the teachings of his teacher, and uh, I was just feeling so grateful and imagining that teacher, and I was just lying there on the grass. It was late at night, looking up at the stars, bringing to mind this powerful teacher that is no longer alive, and. And then all of a sudden, something dawned on my mind, like whatever I imagined about that teacher, however beautiful and wise and loving, that I have to be feeling it myself. 
I mean, it, where is that? He's dead, you know. So whatever I'm understanding, it's right here. What I'm inspired by, actually, isn't that person. I'm inspired by what the thought of that person, what the study of that person's teaching, what that brings alive in my mind, in my heart, right here and now. It's hard to convey that insight in words, but it was a, a real, for me, personally, a real step towards independence, where uh, a kind of respect for the heart, this heart, and its capacity for wisdom, its capacity for love, for freedom. And it's not like I felt, you know, I didn't need teachers or anything like that, but just this deepening understanding that what we need good teachings for is to remind us of something that's here and now. Otherwise, our tendency with teachers and teachings is to want to put them on an altar, you know, and bow down to them and defend them against the heathens that believe in other teachings or other teachers, you know, and on and on like that, which of course doesn't help. <laughs> and generally causes a lot of trouble. So a little bit about Ajahn Chah and then some stories tonight. And then next week we'll just start looking at chapter 1 and 2. If you're reading along, I'll just share some of the teachings of Ajahn Chah. But just a little history. So he was born in 1918, uh, subsistent farmers, his family, northeast Thailand, which is a relatively poor part of the country, up sort of bordering, <coughs> excuse me, Laos and Cambodia. And uh, very, uh, still a lot of jungles, forests back then in the early part of the 19th century. And uh, as was not uncommon at the time, uh, Ajahn Chah ordained, became a novice monk, joined the monastery at the age of nine. And so some boys would do that, very young like that, and they'd get a really good education generally and study the discourses of the Buddha, memorize a lot of them. And there was sort of this whole village monastic life. It's not maybe like you imagine. They sort of do certain duties for the lay people in the village, and it's kind of the central part, evidently, of village life. A lot of activity happened at the local monastery, sort of the city center in a sense. And Maybe the abbot of the monastery was sort of like a mayor or the wise guy that people would go see if there were problems that needed to be solved and things like that. But it was a very busy place, and mostly the monks studied, and there wasn't a real emphasis on meditation practice so much in the village monasteries. But a little bit before Ajahn Chah was born, in the early part of the 1900s, like 1905, 1910, um, Ajahn Man and Ajahn Sa and some other monks uh, rejected the status quo of the monastic tradition in Thailand, which had become institutionalized in these monasteries, village monasteries. And there was this whole national hierarchy in Thailand at the time, become institutionalized. So there was this movement sort of back to the roots, you know, practice like the Buddha practice. It's called now the Thai forest tradition. And it's now the dominant form of Buddhism in Thailand, really. But back then, it was a real movement away from the established form. And uh, part of what they took up, you know, some of the basic teachings from the Buddha and the uh, culture, like how the people at the time of the Buddha practiced. 
And one of the things they did a lot is they wandered. In fact, in the early years of the Buddha, they didn't really stay put at all. They kept, you know, maybe a few days, a week or two, in the, outside of a certain village, but then they'd move on to another place. They didn't really have permanent residencies. And this was encouraged until some of the farmers started to complain that during the rainy season, there were so many, the Buddha became very popular, there were so many monks and nuns following disciples of the Buddha that they trampled all the seedlings, you know, the rice paddies and stuff. And so the farmers complained and asked the Buddha that maybe during the rainy season you could just stay put, no wandering. So that, ever since then, there's been a traditional rains retreat for three months. And because, uh, you know, in Asia they have sort of a rainy time of year where most of the rain falls. And so anyway, uh, but, but outside of that rain period, rains period, the monks would wander. And so in the Thai horse tradition, this, this tradition got picked up again. Sometimes you hear it called Tudong, where the monks are wandering from place to place. So after many years in the local monastery there, Ajahn Chah in his early 20s decided that uh, he wasn't really learning what he wanted to learn there. And he decided, to, he'd heard you know, stories about these wandering monks going back to the basics, the traditional practices, and he decided he'd join them. He started his wandering at that point, and for many decades did that. And of course, if you're doing that, and you know, monks don't carry much, they have a bowl that they receive their food in, and they've got a few other things, very few, and a, a second set of robes, and that's it. And so, obviously, it is the most simple way of living. You can't keep food overnight, so every day you have to receive your food. You don't have a permanent residence. You can't even really study. I mean, you couldn't carry much more than a few little booklets with you. And of course, in Thailand, where there's rain and a lot of humidity, things don't last very long anyway when you're outdoors, you know, not indoors. So they didn't, he didn't have much. And so when he eventually, in the 50s, settled down, uh, now a respected monk near the place he was born, somebody had given him some land that was considered haunted and left alone for a long time. And he moved in and created a monastery because people were starting to want to practice with him. And he had this really simple ethic, which was part of the whole Thai forest tradition. And also this sort of discipline, like back to the basics. And um, it created sort of a unique uh, style of practice. This is from uh, some uh, statements from Achan Semedo, who's his senior Western disciple. He's a uh, American who went to Thailand in the mid-60s and uh, stayed with Ajahn Chah and now is a very well-known Buddhist teacher and still a monk in his uh, mid to late 70s, I think Ajahn Sumedho is. But anyway, he was a relatively young man at the time and he's just describing the early years of his with uh, Ajahn Chah. He says, what impressed me so much about Lung Por, which is, just means venerable father, was that although he seemed such a free spirit and allurant uh, character, at the same time he was very strict with the monastic rules. It was a fascinating contrast. In California, Ajahn Sumedho was a grad student at, in Berkeley in the mid-60s, so that's where he was coming from. 
in California, the idea of freedom was being spontaneous and doing what you felt like. And the idea of moral restraint and discipline in my cultural background was like this big ogre that was coming to squash you with all these rules and traditions. You can't do this and you can't do that and pressing down on you so much. So my immediate reaction in the strict monastery like Wapapong, that was the monastery that Asha Cha started, was to feel oppressed. And yet my feeling about Lung Por was that although his actions were always within these the margins of the monastic rules, he was a free being. He wasn't coming from ideas of doing what he liked, but from inner freedom. So in contemplating him, I began to look at the monastic rules so as to use it, not just to cut yourself off or to oppress yourself, but for freedom. It was like a conundrum. How do you take a restrictive and renunciate convention and liberate your mind through these conventions? I could see that there were no limits to Lung Poor's mind. Oftentimes, attachment to rules make you worry a lot and lack confidence. But Lung Poor was radiant. He was obviously not just someone, uh, not just someone just keeping a lot of rules, anxious about his purity. He was a living example of the freedom that comes from practice. And although our life, you know, as lay people, is very different uh, to the lives of monks and nuns today, let alone what it was back, like back in those traditional settings. I mean, Northeast Thailand at that time, even in the 60s, you know, it was before a lot of modernization. It wasn't that different than it had been for a number of centuries. Very simple rice farmers for the most part. In fact, there are all kinds of stories, you know, the, sometimes there wasn't much around, so the protein were uh, frogs and insects, like even, and that's what the monks would get because they got the best food. You know, the lay people would often give the monks the best food. They wouldn't give them the dregs. So it was a, you know, it was a pretty simple community economic life at that time in that place. So here's Achan Shimedo coming, joining that, you know, from a more sophisticated background. And, you know, especially this idea in the West of individualism and just sort of finding your joy and taking what you want. And, and then to join the monastic culture. Well, but the truth is, you know, it's not that different because when you get have a partner or when you have kids or when you have to earn a living, I mean, there's a lot of conformity, even as lay people. In a way, I think to a large degree, it's relative. You know, it's like our rules, you know, compared to monastic rules, you know, it's relatively simple being a, a lay person. But we don't see it that way. You know, we just, we just feel that we, we feel all kinds of things, that there are all kinds of things to bump up against. You know, like wanting to drive faster than the speed limit not wanting to stop at signs when there's not traffic coming from the other side. You know, all kinds of things. You know, sleeping with other people when we're in committed relationships just because we can get away with it, or so we think. Or cheating on our taxes because no one's going to notice. Or any other number of things that we keep bumping up against. You know, whether we should save for the rainy day or just take our chances. So lay life is also repressive in the same way. 
And it's just a question, you know, all those things that we bump up against as lay people, are we going to use them to sort of feel oppressed and to complain and to blame and to wish it weren't so? Or can we use these conventions, you know, the conventions, the rules of lay life, of being a human being at this time with these circumstances, can we use them to awaken? Like to find a freedom that isn't about the particular constraints in our life. You know, we can feel constrained because we're older. I mean, all of a sudden I'm starting to have a lot of physical pain that I didn't have before. I don't know if something's wrong or if I'm just, this is what it's like to be in your mid-50s. <laughs> but this is like, I'm assuming, you know, as we get older, there's more of this. Some of you probably know this. You're further along. And you realize that it's a big constraint having a body that ages, gets sick. You know? That's not a convenient, that's not how we want it. We want to have that, you know, young, vibrant, nubile body that just seems to weather the storms and bounces back and lots of life energy, twists and turns, don't bother it. But now, you know, we get out of bed and it's a different story. And, you know, we could get, we could really pick up that story and run with it. Just like Ajahn Sumedho tells so many stories about, you know, bumping up against the rules. One funny story is, you know, the monks would often sweep the uh, paths. They just live out in the forest. So there's some central buildings where the monks take their meals. But then they live in little huts spread out through the forest, you know, a couple hundred meters away from the other huts or little called kutis, little cabins, but they're, they're very simple, just sort of up on platforms, sometimes nothing more than a platform, and then you'd have a little, it's called a glot, like a mosquito net around it, maybe just a little, like I, I stayed at one of the monasteries in Thailand, and it was just a little metal roof on four sort of tree trunks, you know, that had been cut on a platform a couple feet off the ground, and then, and then you'd hang a little mosquito net there and if it was a cold time of year you could wrap a blanket or a tarp around two sides or three sides to keep the wind but you know not not that you'd keep any heat in there not that there would be any heat and most of the year of course you don't want heat but um, so they're living very simply like that but there are a lot of paths of course because there are all these little platforms are through the woods they'll have all these intricate pathways for people to kind of move about and, of course, the leaves are falling all the time in the tropics, so they'd get a primitive broom, you know, just a stick with some twigs at the end, and they'd sweep off the paths so that they don't get bit by scorpions or snakes or trip over branches or whatever. And uh, they would do this usually around 3 o'clock, the hot time of the afternoon. And so there he is, you know, shaved head, pale skin, you know, so. Caucasian guy, Ajahn Sumedho there, and uh, and just fuming, thinking, you know, here I am going to Asia to learn to meditate, learn to be free, and i got to do these stupid things, you know, sweeping these paths, and they keep, more leaves keep falling. I'll just read what he said. I was standing, this is Ajahn Sumedho at Ajahn Chah's monastery. He says, I was standing out there one afternoon feeling really miserable, thinking, what am I doing here? Why did I come here? Why am I staying here? 
There I stood with my long, crude broom and absolutely no energy, feeling sorry for myself and hating everything. Then Ajahn Chah came up and smiled at me and said, Wapapong is a lot of suffering, isn't it? And walked away. So this is, this is where a teacher, a really good teacher, because they don't, they're not kind of invested in their own self-centered dramas, they're just literally a force of nature. It's like a force of nature shows up, and that force of nature is going to respond from the whole of the moment. So what he says, how he says it, is coming really right out of the moment. It's just the right thing to say and do. It's like uh, there's a great thing from the early Chinese Zen masters. I forget exactly which one. But he was asked, this is way back, you know, maybe 5th century, 6th, 7th century, something like that. But he was asked something like, what did the Buddha teach his whole life long? Right? So give me the essence of the Buddhist teachings. You can just imagine asking a, a great wise person this. And this wise person said an appropriate response. And that's, that's really a great answer if you think about it. Like, what is it that makes an awakened person different than a typical ordinary human being? They respond appropriately in the moment because their action, their response to the moment is coming out of unity, like non-separateness. So it's literally nature is speaking because they're not constructing some sense of self, some sense of separation, and then all the neurotic fear and greed that comes with a sense of separation, and then acting out of that. So Ajahn Chah, being a force of nature, drifting by, sees Ajahn, maybe he was mag magnetically attracted to walk out there knowing that Ajahn Sumedha was out there steaming, stewing, <laughs> hating being there, you know. As it, when you read a lot of the stories of the Buddha, you hear all of these kinds of examples where there's some monk or some nun all by themselves practicing, and somehow, I mean, these are just stories, but who knows what really happened. The Buddha psychically knows what's going on and would appear there, you know, to give them a teaching. It's like that old cliche, you know, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. I think there's some truth. We don't always like, usually we don't like the teachers that appear. Like old age is a teacher, you know, or sickness can be a teacher or an obnoxious boss can be a teacher. And sometimes when we're lucky, the teacher is that sort of stereotypic wise woman or wise man who gives us the appropriate response. So in this case, Sajan Chah shows up and says, Wapapang is a lot of suffering. And the thing is, that's exactly what Ajahn Sumedha was thinking, but it was mirrored back like how ridiculous it is. And this is what Ajahn Sumedha says. So Ajahn Chah says, Wapapang is a lot of suffering, isn't it? And then he walks away. So I thought, why did he say that? And actually, you know, it's not all that bad. <laughs> he got me to contemplate. Is sweeping the leaves really that unpleasant? No, it's not. It's not a neutral thing. It's, it's kind of a neutral thing. You sweep the leaves. It's neither here nor there. Is sweating all that terrible? Is it really miserable, humiliating experience? Is it really as bad as I'm pretending it is? No. Sweating is all right. It's a perfectly natural thing to be doing. And I don't have skin cancer. And the people at Wapapang are very nice. 
The teacher is a, a very kind, wise man. The monks have treated me well. The lay people come and give me food to eat. And what am I complaining about? Reflecting upon the actual experience of being there, I thought, I'm all right. People respect me. I'm treated well. I've, I'm being taught by pleasant people in, very pleasant, in a very pleasant country. There's nothing really wrong with anything except me. I'm making a problem out of it because I don't want to sweat and I don't want to sweep leaves. Then I had a very clear insight. I suddenly perceived something in me which was always complaining and criticizing and which was preventing me from ever giving myself to anything or offering myself to any situation. And this is, the, this is how when we submit, when we look at our life and notice where we bump up against rules and then where we submit, we can have that same insight. It's like all the ways we hold back in life. Like in little ways, like, you know, making a mess in the bathroom and not wanting to clean it up now. It's like I won't submit to that responsibility. Forget it. I'll do it later. Think about even in one day how many little things we've put off. Like, oh, I just don't have the energy to submit to that responsibility. You know, we just throw the clothes here or leave that email unresponded to. Even though we've already taken the time to read it, we've already thought about what needs to be done, but we just can't bear to write it. So we put it off, and then we're going to have to reread it again and think the same thoughts over again. I do this all the time. <laughs> it's like, I can't tell you how many times I've had the insight that you don't have less work when you're a week behind your emails. It's like, if you're going to answer them, you might as well answer them right away, right? There's no way, like, you, you get an advantage by putting it off. They just keep coming. <laughs> And so this is, this is a flavor of that submission. You know, and traditionally, <clears throat> the community life was really had a lot to do with that. And we have our own community life. It's just not as supportive as being a monk or a nun at a monastery, where we're, we all kind of know that we're here for this development, you know, this realization of, a, of an inner wisdom, uh, an inner letting go. So that's why we're not as supportive. But we can come together like we do here at Common Ground. And be, we can be reminded. And we can be reminders for each other, just like wise teachers can be reminders for us. And there are many stories of how Ajahn Chah, as a force of nature, would just mirror back stuff to people. And you'll see this in yourself. Like sometimes when I'm with my wife, I'm really clean. I'm really not sort of caught in my stories, my dramas, in what I say or don't say, how I act. It's just the right medicine. She may not like it, but it's really good medicine. Sometimes it's a very gentle, sweet medicine. Sometimes it isn't. But it's not, it doesn't sort of leave a bad taste. More often, I am involved. You know, I am attached. I have my opinions that I'm stuck on. And what I do to try to be helpful is not helpful at all. It's just the opposite. And so as community members with the people we care about here at Common Ground, people you live with, your friends, your family, you know, the idea of being a good teacher for them is to be that natural mirror, to be honest and to be truthful, you know, to be uh, fearless, 
but not out of judgment, not out of that sort of critical mind, but out of love. And that's when we use humor just the right way and speak the truth in just the right way. You know, not speaking the truth because we can. It's sort of like a gotcha moment. Like, I gotcha. So, do you realize you're doing this? That's not speaking the truth. The Buddha said to speak the truth, it's got to be not only true, but you have to find the, the right way to say it, you know, so that it can be received. And you have to find the right time, you know, in a way that is uh, going to lead to positive results. Otherwise, you shouldn't say it. Another story that's uh, interesting, you know, Ajahn didn't emphasize meditation practice so much. In fact, when Ajahn Tomato showed up, he had been practicing as a monk in Thailand, mostly on sort of his solo retreat in a little kuti. And, uh, but he realized he needed a teacher, so he sought out Ajahn Chah because he had been he had been recommended as a teacher. And Ajahn Chah did ask him about how he's been meditating, and Ajahn Chah just said, oh yeah, you can continue with that tech meditation technique. Because Ajahn Chah emphasized more the community practice, just immersing yourself in the uh, oppressiveness of community life. For us, it's having kids, having a job, living in a city. For them, it was you know following all the rules of being a monk, having to get your food every day, having to wear these robes that don't really stay on your body very well. I practiced for five months as a monk in Burma, and uh, I mean five months putting my robe on and off several times a day, and I still, you know, you could catch in a minute that I was a relatively new monk by the time I disrobed and came home. Because it's not easy to keep that robe on. I mean, it's, it's a total mindfulness practice just to wear the traditional robes of a Buddhist monk or Buddhist nun. There's another story um, where Ajahn, I mean, uh, uh, Jack Hornfield, when he was a monk there, and he was a monk with Ajahn Chah for a number of years, and then decided that he wanted to do more intensive practice. You know, he is, maybe he had been hearing stories about other monks and people, Westerners, who had gone to these other monasteries where they do intensive meditation practice and are having really intensive meditation experiences, and it kind of caught his attention. So he got permission from Ajahn Chah to go, and he went, and he had some really powerful meditation experiences. He did. I think a couple years there maybe, or a year at least, um, practices with a number of monks in Thailand and in Burma. Um, and then eventually came back to Ajahn Chah's monastery and told Ajahn Chah about all his meditation experiences. And Ajahn Chah's <coughs> response was, just something else to let go of. <laughs> so it's just uh, that appropriate response. There's another great story where uh, this is later, um, probably in the late 70s or so, maybe even early 80s. <clears throat> and uh, Ajahn Tomato at this point was now in England, a uh, very thriving monastic community in those years, just beginning, but quite active, quite vibrant. A lot of, not just men, but a lot of women were coming, wanting to ordain. So they created this whole new kind of order called Siladars where the women could practice with the men and basically practice as sort of male monastics or the similar rules to the male monastics because it's there's just a lot of problems with that in Asian Buddhism with the way the females are treated. 
So anyway, there's some women, and they're they're doing you know this great monastic practice and having benefits. And so he's got several women with him and several men, and he's going to take them to Thailand to practice traditional you know in the traditional monasteries there. And he's been telling these women, especially about this nun in Thailand, this uh, Western nun in Thailand, who he thinks is just fantastic, and really looking forward to introducing these newer women practitioners to this more senior. Buddhist nun in Thailand, um, and hoping that she'll be their mentor and show them the way and all things like that. And he gets there and he finds out that this nun that he thought was so great had disrobed and joined the Christian missionaries in Thailand, which were not so respected in Thailand, you know, because you know they're kind of selling their wares. And uh, and uh, Ajahn was just like, how could that be? You know, because he thought, thought this was the way and um, thought that that nun was really on board and getting a lot of benefits from her practice and that the fact that she disrobed was one thing but then disrobed and become a Christian missionary in Thailand was just a little hard for him to comprehend. So at some point he went up to Ajahn Chah and asked, you know, how could something like this happen? And Ajahn Chah looks at him. You could probably imagine what he said. Well, maybe she's right. Because that would be such a powerful mirror for one to see their attachment. You know, their attachment that I've got the right way. You know, ah, I'm a Buddhist. This is it. So all these, so many stories. And as we we spend time um, looking at this book, Food for Heart, we'll hear many, many more stories of Ajahn Chah in his way of teaching. One more thing I wanted to share, and this is from um, the introduction that Ajahn Amaro, another Western Buddhist monk, in the Ajahn Chah tradition, uh, he wrote in his introduction to this book, as he's introducing Ajahn Chah, he mentions a time when Ajahn Chah came to the West in the late 70s, and I think both England and also then the United States. And I believe it was at IMS where this happened, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, one of the main uh, major uh, retreat centers for this style of practice. I've done a lot of my practice there over the years. And uh, he's there with people probably like Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and some of the early teachers. And uh, he's giving them some advice. And he says, you will succeed in truly spreading the Buddha Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha here, only if you are not afraid to challenge the desires and opinions of your students. And literally what he said in Thai was to stab their hearts. If you do this, you will succeed. If you do not, if you change the teachings and the practices to fit the existing habits and opinions of people out of a misguided sense of wanting to be wanting to please them, you will have failed in your duty to serve them in the best possible way. So as we take some time over the next few months to study the teachings of an Asian teacher and somebody who sort of did that back to the basics approach, like, well, let's read and study how they did it back at the time of the Buddha and do what they did and see what happens. And of course, many, many beautiful saints came out of that hundred years or so of practice in Thailand. And a lot of what we're getting here is arising. You know, the Buddhism in the West is coming from those people who kind of broke out of the established mode and kind of went back to the basics. 
And so one of our tasks, you know, as we study Ajahn Chah's teachings is somehow to translate the basic teachings of the Buddha and the style of living of the Buddha. Like, how can that look here and now in a layperson's life with these duties and responsibilities? We shouldn't just assume this is the big mistake. That was then, this is now. You know, it's nice to think about it. It's nice to study it. Maybe in a future life I'll be born, you know, in those kind of conditions. No, the appropriate thing to do is to really take it in and then to be creative. Like, well, how can, how does that look here? How can that look, how can I bring that alive here in this life? Not to, yeah, not to feel like we're doomed because we have ice cream and we have, you know, money in our pockets and we have choices that we can make and we have sex and the nuns and monks don't have sex. Because it isn't about, ultimately it isn't about external things. So it's not about whether we have sex or, or we're celibate. It's about whether there's attachment in the mind. You know, so when we don't have sex, is that a problem? Then if it is, it's a, then we're attached. You know, so when there's delicious ice cream to eat, then you can eat it. You know, as long as you're not harming anybody, you can have the delicious ice cream. But when it's all gone and you suffer, that should be a red flag. Like, <laughs> oh, this is suffering. You know, so when you decide, you know, at a store, once, you know, every couple months, not to buy ice cream, you know, then it's just like a playful thing. Well, let's just see what this does to the mind. You know, because attachment is suffering. So to keep feeding attachment isn't good. So every once in a while, you know, as a layperson, we can just go on a retreat, leave our TVs behind, and just see what that does for us. And if it's no problem, then we know we're not attached. Or anything, you know, anything you think it might you might be attached to, you can experiment. And if you are attached, you have every incentive to want to free the heart from that attachment. Because even if you're not aware of it, it's painful to be attached. Now, a lot of us are attached to our families, our kids, our parents, our partners, our friends, and we just assume it's appropriate to be attached. No, it's totally understandable that we're attached because it's reinforced in so many different ways in our culture. But it isn't helpful to be attached. And being attached isn't the same as taking care of being responsible. We can be responsible for a child. But to be attached means that our idea of the way it should be is paramount. And we've lost the aliveness in the relationship. Even being a parent of a three-year-old or a one-year-old, she is not yours, or he is not yours. Some of you know. You have little kids. They're their own thing. They're a force of nature doing their own thing. And we're there to care for them, to love them, but not to be attached to them. And it's the same with our partners. It's the same with our money. It's the same with our power. We may, you may have a lot of power in your life for whatever reason. But if you're attached to it, you're going to suffer. In fact, this should be, and this is, you know, all the great teachers reinforce this. If ever you feel any suffering, any stress, you should always ask, 
Where's the attachment? What is the mind attached to? What is the mind clinging to? If there's suffering, then that means right now in this moment the mind is clinging to something. It's holding tight to something. There's no suffering without the mind attached to something. So you can just use that as a way of contemplating your own experience. But that's probably enough for tonight with Ajahn Chah. Like I mentioned next week, the first chapter is just a couple paragraphs, and then the second chapter is a little longer. So if you do get a hold of the book and want to read along, we'll cover chapters one and two for the next week or two. But we have about ten minutes if you have any comments. Yeah, Paul. Well, I'm making the distinction between pain or unpleasant experience and the mental suffering that resists life, resists pain. So suffering is the mental resistance, the mental struggling with life. Life is a combination of pleasant and unpleasant experiences. Suffering is the mind's tightness in response to life. Sometimes we get tight around pleasant. Sometimes we get tight around unpleasant experience. Sometimes we get tight around neutral experience. But the tightness, the grasping, the clinging, the attachment, that's unnecessary. But there will be pain in life, no doubt. But we have to understand that what we think pain is, is mostly attachment. The pain of attachment. What is pain? What is like, you know, right now your body might hurt a little bit. So tune into some place in your body that's unpleasant. So for me, you know, I just feel some <clears throat> painful sensations in my shin there that's been pressed up against the cushion for a while. What is that, those painful sensations when the mind isn't taking it personally, isn't attached to wanting to move the leg, attached for this program to be over so I can stretch my leg out. What is that? It's like Ajahn Sumedho there in the hot sun, sweating, dusty, you know. What is the problem when the mind isn't resisting the sweat, isn't resisting the heat? It's just heat. It's just dust. It's just, you know, maybe the eyes are a little irritated by the dust just for the unpleasantness of the humidity and heat. But we have to create a story for that to be a problem. So a little later, a couple centuries after the time of the Buddha, there was this famous uh, Buddhist monk, Buddha Gosa, who wrote a famous manual, like meditation manual, but it's thick, called The Path of Purification. And in there he says something like, suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. There is doing, but no doer to be found, right? So there's pain, but there's nobody turning that pain into a problem. There's no part of the mind that's interpreting the pain as a problem. So that's what I'm saying. We have to keep an open mind about what pain is when the mind isn't creating a problem out of it. And it's easy for us to learn this with mild, unpleasant experiences. Like you're sitting at home doing your meditation practice, and there's an ear somebody's mowing their lawn next door. 
Anyhow, why are they mowing the lawn early in the morning? Or something like that. And you can create a huge problem. Like, God, every Saturday, for the rest of my life, I'm going to have to deal with this jerk. You know? And he not only, you know, if he was ecologically minded, he would be doing a push mower, or at least an electric mower, but he's got that old gas. And you could just go on and on. You could whip up such a knot in your heart in that 30-minute set and really suffer. Or the mind could be aware of that sound and even aware that it doesn't like that sound, that it's unpleasant. But you could train your mind not to do anything more, just the perception of the sound, the perception of not liking, and that's it. The mind doesn't do any more because it realizes that to do anything more is unnecessary suffering. And then after a while, the unpleasantness is just the way that it is because it doesn't belong to anybody. There isn't anybody making it their unpleasantness wanting to get rid of it. And it really changes things. So we need to start with really small impingements, small unpleasant experiences, and gain the confidence. Then we can go to the dentist, or have a breakup, or lose our job, you know, the big ones, or lose a parent or something, or face our own death. Yeah. Thanks, James. That's a really good point. The difference, so if you didn't hear him, he was really talking about the, what, are, what exactly is the difference between an intention, setting an intention like he's done in his practice, and an expectation that would cause suffering, be linked to or similar to attachment. Well, I think, I think setting an intention is very close to it, but, but there is a very important place in practice that I think you're referring to about intention. But it's not so much about setting intention. I think I talk about it this way, that you're sitting, you know, like at the beginning of a set, and you notice the intention to be in the present moment, to be with the breath, like you said. And so there's that intention, like, instead of thinking about tomorrow, instead of worrying about this, you could just be with the body, just be with the breath. So you see that intention in the mind, 
And if you're mindful in that moment, when that intention is there, you can recognize that that intention is beautiful. That intention is it has the flavor of liberation. Like there's something really simple and liberating about that intention. In the same way that the intention to like want to figure something out so I can that that intention is not beautiful. That tastes you know tight. I don't want to go there. So instead of so much setting the intention, it's more like recognizing wholesome intentions as being wholesome. That's the correct way of setting an intention. It's not so much imposing something as much as it is as recognizing the wholesome intentions as being wholesome. That strengthens them. And it does set something in motion. But what's actually the karmic cause of that, like what actually sets something in motion, is that moment of wisdom where the mind sees the intention and not just sees it, but recognizes that it's wholesome, that it sets in motion positive consequences. Consequences. That's what makes the difference. So we can do that anytime. Anytime during the day, we can recognize a wholesome emotion, a wholesome intention as wholesome. And it's different than an expectation, because an expectation we're sort of saying it's coming from this judgmental or critical mind that's saying, this is the way I should be. I shouldn't be that way. But that judgment isn't the cause for becoming good. Wanting to be good isn't the cause for being good. Wanting to be wise doesn't lead to wisdom. Wanting to be kind doesn't lead to kindness. What leads to kindness is actually noticing a kind intention in the mind, actually being mindful of that, that impulse to be kind, and not just to see it, but to recognize that it's good, like it feels good, it feels right, it leads to happiness. So you're, the mind, the wisdom, is discerning not just that it's there, but that it's skillful. That's how you become more kind in the future, by recognizing kindness here as a wholesome force in the mind. And that's how you eliminate anger or any of the unwholesome states, is by recognizing anger now as being unwholesome. Because if you really see a moment of anger or aversion or fear or greed, and you see it and you, in a sense, taste that it's tight and abandon it, then you're less likely to be angry in the future just because that one moment changes things. Yeah. And we should probably leave it here. Let's just take a breath together. Let go of the words. And having the resolve to recognize all the different teachers that arise in the next week or so and all their different disguises. We might read a passage from a book that just is like connecting with a wise teacher, or we might bump into a difficult person and see this difficult experience as a teacher showing up our resistance, showing up the mind's negativity. Willing to Submit to the life that we have. Learn what we can learn. So may this be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.